Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. It's Sunday. It's a special Sunday. That must be in a special Motley Fool Money mailbag edition. Well, they're always special. They're always on Sunday, but, well, you'd be disappointed if they weren't here. So, here we are. We being Scott Phillips. I'm the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer and my good mate, ex-colleague and current straw man himself, Andrew Page. How are you, mate? I'm very good on this lovely Sunday. And how about yourself, fine sir? <laughs> you don't know if you're good on this Sunday at all. We're pre-recording this. It could be any time. You know, oh, you know, you've, ru- you've, you've shattered ruined- the illusion. Oh, I have, I have. No, no, I, our listeners know we're pre-recording this. Um, I did... <laughs> I did uh, make a point of letting people know because, you know, uh, who knows what happened between then and now or now and then. Uh, for all we know, mate, the world could have ended and this, this recording could be going out to a couple of cockroaches and some aliens. Who, who knows? But let's assume that everything's okay. <laughs> let's assume that people are still listening. They could have all given up on us just quietly. Let's assume they're all listening. Let's give them a, give them a good okay. podcast. Good, mate, good plan. <laughs> let's, so, look, <clears throat> straw man, I've heard of this thing. What, what is it again? <laughs> Very simply, Strawman is a investment club, my friend. And so okay. we're for the more serious, uh, I, I think, uh, discerning investor who likes to oh, sort okay. of take responsibility for oh, their okay. own investments. And so That's it's important. just that, look, it's a bunch of private investors. We share ideas by managing virtual portfolios and contributing to, to shared company reports. And so, yeah, you can you can find some people with some stonkingly good performances and, and track them and see what trades they're doing and hopefully pick up a few ideas. Very good. There you go. Uh, and of course, you probably know what the Motley Fool is, where we provide uh, independent research uh, and advice to retail investors. Um, I, I, I am contractually bound. No, not really, but I'm morally bound to ask Andrew about that because Andrew is doing this, well, speaking behind the curtain for free because he loves me, he loves you guys, and he loves being here. We love having him here. So, mate, thank you, as always, for spending a little bit of time uh, with the Motley Fool Money uh, podcast and in this particular Motley Fool Money mailbag episode. Let's, uh, well, let's, mate, let's it, get... It, it helps when you like the sound of your own voice, you know. So <laughs> if there's, if there's a soapbox around, I'll go stand on it, you know. <laughs> I would know nothing about that whatsoever. I don't, I don't write emails three times a week uh, for no nothing. Let's just let's just put it that way. Um, or <laughs> it's a worry, isn't it? They can, people are going to think we have massive egos, mate. And um, maybe that's just true. Actually, is that, let's is that not explore that. Let's yeah, not good. let's not dig into that. <laughs> Instead, let's go to Matt because Matt says hi, Scott, and welcome back, Ram. Quick question for the pod. I've been listening to you for a while now. Good man. And one thing I've picked up is that anyone who has been investing for any reasonable amount of time is bound to make their fair share of mistakes. I think he's talking about us, but let's move on. But regardless, he <laughs> says, you need to use those mistakes as learning opportunities, which brings me to my question. I followed a recommendation to buy Newix shares. And as you would know, things over at Newix have gone from bad to worse in a very short period of time. I've now lost 70% of my dough and doing some soul searching on how to avoid this situation in the future. In your opinion, what is the lesson here? I like this, man. It's not a what's happening with Newix next. It's what's the lesson. Is it a lesson mm. in holding against all odds for the long term? Or a lesson in knowing when to identify that a thesis is broken? Or is it something else? I'm trying to apply some motley wisdom here, but I'm interested in your guidance. Best regards, Matt. I love this one, mate, because he's not saying, you know, what next for Newix or whatever. He's saying, look, okay, I've lost some money. What do I learn mm. from this one? And I, I will, I'll ask you, Matt, but I'll preface this by saying, I've said this before, I say to our team all the time, be careful not to learn the wrong lessons. Was I saying that when you were around? Probably. I, I, yeah, I, I, love yeah. A good, I love a good phrase I, I like to stick to. And so Matt's right, right? You don't want to learn the wrong lessons here because what you learn from Newix may well help you go on to pick or live through or avoid future you know, um, pain or, or benefit. Or if you learn the wrong lesson, you actually might talk yourself out of the next afterpay while trying to avoid the next Newix. So what is it, mate? Is this a lesson of bad luck, 
good business gone bad a bad business that was always bad a share price that was always overhyped is it um just the luck of the draw is it the risk of ipos how would you categorize or characterize the newix well failure so far we don't know what happens next but just thus far how are you th- how are you thinking about newix and, and the lessons learned uh, it, it's really tough. So I have to start by saying I'm not overly familiar with the Newick story. Right. Um, although I do understand there's a bit of a legal pickle going on, potentially <laughs> a very highly, hotly ramped IPO with some unreasonable figures in there, which is a real stink um, to surround a, a stock. Um, but here's the, here's the hard thing as an investor. You've kind of got to hold two diametrically opposed views in your head at the same time. <laughs> Yeah. The one is that the market is generally going to be right, you know, uh, mm-hmm. o- over time, but also that the market can be really wrong yeah. <laughs> at other times. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you have to know, is this, a, is this one of those situations where Newix mm-hmm. has fallen for very good fundamental reasons that really accurately reflect the, the prospects and, and future prosperity of the business? Yeah. Or... Uh, is this one of those short-term volatility kind of things? Because, you know, the weakness that we've seen there is sort of the last six months or so um, that's, that's got more to do with, uh, you know, a potential early stumble from a company. But over, over yeah. you know, in 10 years' yeah. time, it's still a much bigger and more profitable business. That yeah. is yeah. always the thing. So, you know, in, if, if, it's, if it's the former, i.e. there's something materially wrong and your investment thesis, as you say, is busted, then you just get out. Right, you you, you yeah. walk away. There's you, just because it's gone down seventy percent doesn't mean it can't go down another hundred <laughs> percent. And as we always say, that money can be deployed somewhere else. Um, if it is short term volatility, and maybe the market reacts on the downside, overreacts on the downside as much as it does on the upside. Um, in many cases, this could be a buying opportunity. So that's a very wishy washy answer, which basically <laughs> boils down to it depends. Yeah. But yeah. that's really the crux of it. So that you, yeah. you can't just, you can't, as we've said many times before, the market is there to serve, not to inform. Um, we, we, we tend to assume that when we're buying that the market is horribly wrong, but when we're selling, the market is very right. Um, mm. And you've just, got to be, you've just got to be clear on that. I would say, I'll, I'll hand it over to you, but I, I would say if you land in the situation having thought about that of, I just don't know, um, mm. That also is probably a reason just to walk away because then you can reevaluate things in the cool light of day. And if it turns out that actually, no, I still like this business, I, st- I still think there's an opportunity, you can, you can buy back in. So it's mm. not a matter of trying to sort of say, I'll buy back in at a lower price or anything like that. I, I just mean once, once you've clarified your thinking and you have formed a bit of conviction one way or the other, you can always, you can always get back in, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you think? Oh man, such a big topic, and I was—I'm I'm determined to get through more questions this week, mate. So I'm going to try and keep my thoughts as short and sharp as I possibly can. You can wave your arms or yell at me or talk at me when I've talked too long. Um, so here's what I think: the first thing I think is you need to think about your investing style and approach. If you're the sort of investor who is aiming for some big winners and prepared to accept some big losers, then the new story may well be directly in your wheelhouse. For every Remember, class went bananas after an mm. IPO, up 400% yeah. or something in a year, whatever it was. Afterpay's done spectacularly well. I'm going to cherry pick three and say, if you own class Afterpay and Newix, that's a really, really good... If, that, if that, your investment strategy gives you those three stocks, you've done really, really, really well out of them. And so, mm. you know, the lesson to, to be learned for me is not a straight lesson because if you're, if you're a, an IPO investor and you're looking for that stuff, then you should expect something going to go really badly. Dick Smith, Meyer, you know, Newix off the IPO, others will do spectacularly well. And overall, I expect you'll probably do okay if you invest correctly. If your style is not that, if you've got Commonwealth Bank, Macquarie, CSL, 
cochlear and UX, <laughs> then maybe the lesson is just be mindful of what your investing strategy is and should be. I'm got, I've got to say, I'm not an IPO investor. I wait at least 12 months to buy IPOs because um, I want to see that. Now, I will miss the classes that, that skyrocket and the afterpays that do well, um, but I'll also miss the new Xs. And that for me is okay because that's my style, risk tolerance, preference. I'd rather have a slightly higher strike rate, a slightly lower range of outcomes. And so I wouldn't have, I didn't buy new X, I wouldn't have bought new X, I haven't recommended new X. But again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying for me and my style, that's how I choose to invest. And that's how I choose to do it, right? So that's that, that for me is the biggest lesson of all. One more for me, Matt, is the lesson is about investor sentiment. So right now, we know the business has kind of underwhelmed the market, but it hasn't done terribly. If you think about the returns or the numbers they've delivered versus what they said they would do, yeah, it's down. But it's not down that much that the share should have created by so far. The cratering is because, as you said, Ram, from the hype of the IPO, investors were simply expecting wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. And like anything, share prices respond to results versus expectations, not results versus last year or results versus the year before. So you can double your sales, double your profits, and share still fall 40% because the market was expecting more. You can decline mm. by 50%, the share price rises because, wow, it's not bankrupt yet. We thought it would go worse than this. And so it's always expectations. That's the other lesson I'd probably take from it. So investing style is important. If you're a higher risk investor, then you should have bought Newix and you should be okay if not happy with what happened because net, net, you win. But if you're not that sort of investor, if this is unusual for your style or not in keeping with how you wanted to invest, the lesson might be, hey, if you're stepping out of your wheelhouse, particularly with one stock, it's a coin toss. And it's not a 50-50 chance, it's a 100 or zero. I mean, it's a 50 chance of heads or tails, but you don't get a chance for that to play out. You get a head or a tail. You don't get half heads, half tails if you only toss the coin once. So if that's not your style you may bring yourself undone. All right, question from Jason, mate. Hi, Andrew and Scott. Love your podcast. Great discussions, debates, and insights. Thanks, Jason. I would be grateful, he says, for your thoughts on Altium's rejection of the $5 billion takeover from Autodesk. That's a great question. I would also appreciate your general comment on how shareholders should react to takeover bids. It appears that most initial takeover bids are rejected, even though the offer is significantly higher above the share price. In some cases... The takeover bid is later withdrawn and shareholders lose value. For example, Link's rejection of the two takeover offers. Mate, I'm on a roll. I'm going to try and keep it short. Here we go. I'll let mm -hmm. you jump in second. Um, I think Altium was very, very gutsy. <laughs> I mean that both as a, as a, as a compliment and as a, as a pejorative. Um, if someone offers you 40% more, my dog's barking in the background. How good is that? If someone's offering you 40% more mm. uh, than your shares were trading for yesterday, you got to ask yourself, if you weren't filling your boots at the previous price, then why wouldn't you sell at the current price? In other words, if you really think the shares are worth, let's, let's say, they'll, to make my math easy, let's say they're $10 beforehand and now they're $14. If you weren't filling your boots at $10 because you thought this business was worth 20 and someone offers you 14 you say no, there's kind of some cognitive dissonance going on there, right? And it's all about mm -hmm. the fact that someone's offered you a, a better price. If, if someone said to you, hey, would you be happy if Newix, uh, Newix, Altium sold for 14 bucks? Oh yeah, I'd be stoked, that'd be great. Well, now it is. Well, I'm not going to sell. Well, which one do you want? Mm. Do you want the lower price and buy more or the higher price and sell? Now, that being said, I, mm. uh, if I was Altium, I would have taken this one, i got to say. Um, not because I know it's definitely worth that, but because this is money, <coughs> money for jam, risk-free cash right now. You, you know, what, what's a 40% gain worth to you? Is it, you know, in, to, to, to put away? Would you have to get the offer of 60, 70, 80% to make it worth the risk because that may not eventuate? I don't know but I would have knocked that back. On the flip side, as, as Jason rightly says, mate, the usual takeover is pitched at 10% more than the previous price and the directors pull out, you know, that they dust off the director's takeover handbook and on page one it says, 
whatever the price is offered, say no, because that puts you in a negotiating position to ask for more later. You know, only mm-hmm. only a mug director or someone who's desperate or who's getting offered a stupid amount of money says yes first off, because, if, if you know, it's like an auction, right? No, no other auction, so you put your house up there, say, give me a million dollars, okay, sold. But don't you want to see if I would pay more? No, no, I'm, sold, I'm selling now. So, of course, like an auctioneer, this is a an auction, sometimes a one-party auction, by the way, but a director is always supposed to, probably rightly to be fair, but but by by, by convention as well. Directors always say no the first time around, see if they can get a better price. If they, they, they engage an expert's report, and the expert's report always says the company's worth a fortune because that's why experts are engaged. You don't do it unless you're going to get a good result, right? Uh, and so that's mm. how they do it. So, Jason, you're right. Um, I I think uh, unless, you, unless you have a high conviction the company's worth a lot more in the long term, I would probably take most takeover offers, um, particularly because it's, it's money in the hand. But... If you let, let's take a simple example, um, Commonwealth Bank. If the Bank of New York had offered to take over Commonwealth Bank at the middle in the middle of the COVID crash, uh, and then the shares subsequently doubled, they bought it, got it for half the price. They would have made an absolute fortune. So the other thing is always the case as well that sometimes the takeover, uh, the the potential buyer, knows the value, even though the market's not giving it that value currently. Um, but again, mm. you can't have it both ways. Either you're going to you think it's cheap and should be buying, or you think it's expensive and you should be selling. You know, during if the market says Commonwealth Bank's worth fifty bucks a share during COVID, well, that's what it's you know worth. In theory, it's almost off at sixty. You can't blame them, uh, but you have to be mindful that sometimes the market is right, as you said in the last answer around. Sometimes it's dead wrong. What do you reckon? It's a tough one. Um, in in the case of Altium specifically, I think it was. I'll I'll put the positive spin on it, which is that okay. it's a very strong sign from from management. So the CEO owns a very large proportion of the shares. Um, And and you sort of, you know, it's always helpful, I think, to to try and look at the perspective of the people who are making the decision Mm. here. So, (laughs) you you know, Aram, the CEO, knows better than anyone how, how, what kind of shape the business is in and what Mm. he thinks he can Mm. do with that over the next few years. Now, he could be horribly mistaken and overly optimistic, but for... But but if he had and and he's no he's no fool you know he yep. he knows yep. that the that the shares are trading at a pretty lofty multiple and that yep. can change very quickly on the market, mm-hmm. so I you know if I was to put myself into his shoes and think well mm-hmm. look I think we're going to go okay, but geez we're already trading on a forward PE of of eighty times we've that's told the market thing, yeah. we're probably probably going to grow at sort of seventeen to twenty percent very strong <laughs> growth by the way but that's yeah you know, that's in the price and then I get this huge premium. And then just from a personal mm-hmm. level, I don't have to go into work anymore every day and have the high pressure stress <laughs> of being a CEO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to literally get <laughs> tens of millions out billion. of this. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. You know, like that is that is no matter how much you love your job and the rest of it, that is a very yeah. difficult proposition for most of us for most <laughs> of us to walk away. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so on one hand, you you could make the argument that he's going, mm-hmm. well, that's nice. I just personally think I'm going to make a hell of a lot more money in the long run yeah. just by continuing yeah. to run the business. You know, we are the dominant player in the printed circuit board design market. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been growing at incredible rates. We've got an incredible momentum in our sales. Um, I, I think I think that is 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 a is potentially a very strong sign. All of that. Like that. Uh, ha- having said all of that, I think um, takeovers can can be a real distraction here. It's always, mm-hmm. it always comes, this, this tends to be the answer to so many um, questions that we get, but it, for me, it always comes back to having some kind of notion as to what the business is really worth. Mm-hmm. Because without that to anchor on, all of these decisions are hard, whether it's a takeover offer or just an offer on the market. You know, do mm-hmm. I buy, do I sell? Well, I, I have to have some independent ver- notion of what yeah, this right. is worth. If, if, I, right. if ALU 
dis, uh, Altium, I should say, I shouldn't use the code, <laughs> ALU the code. If, well, that, done, if that delisted tomorrow and yeah. I had an opportunity to buy in and, you know, as a private company, I wouldn't have the liquidity mm-hmm. there, so I'd probably be forced to hold it for quite a while. You know, what would a, what would a, a reasonable price be that I would I would be prepared to pay such that I could mm. expect a decent return for all of the risk and, and the time yeah. I have to wait? You know, th- that, that makes – that – is what makes the decision for me. So yeah, I, think it's um, I will I will say that when, yes, I really like Altium. I like it a lot. Um, I've held it in the past. I do think it's a little bit overvalued at this point in time. It's, it's mm-hmm. um, I think the consensus on straw man is the same. So in this instance, I would have been prepared to take it, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a mute point, right? So um, yeah. they're not going to take it. <laughs> uh, maybe they'll get an even higher offer and maybe they'll, maybe they'll take that one and, and, and you'll see. But, but I, as you said, given what I think of the price, given what I think of the valuation, if, yeah. if a higher offer did come along and they were going to go ahead with it, I'd be happy with it. If not, I'd probably consider maybe lightening the load depending on my weighting mm-hmm. too, just, just because as I say, there's a lot in that price. Very good. I like it, mate. Here's one from Ian. Dear Scott and Andrew, thanks for the fantastic weekly podcast, which has taught me so much about the world of investing. You're welcome, mate. Can I add a plea? Uh, can I please add a question in the mailbag? He asks. You certainly can. You certainly have. You certainly will. I'm a long-time listener, he says. And one recurring message comes over loud and clear. When people say these recurring messages, mate, I'm hearing them say, geez, you guys bang on a lot. Is that is that is that fair? <laughs> Well, as we've often talked about, the, the, like the hard thing with investing is there's kind of like maybe half a dozen really important core ideas, and oh, mate, so our job is not, really. You don't not, not letting people behind the curtain. You've just given the whole game away. We talk twice a week, every week on that about six things. Is that what you're telling me? Oh, the finance industry loves to pretend that things are super, super complicated, and you need us. Yeah, you make to, your money. You need to pay us a lot of money to to do all this kind of stuff. But it is <laughs> the challenge is is to is to try and say these things in a different way each time. But you know, we we, we could we could give fancy different answers every time. We just come back to the core principles, which which all we right. know work, right? So let's let, let's go back to one of those those dead horses we are flogging. Um, he said, "Something goes a lot clear on your podcast is your attitude to leverage investing." I don't disagree with those opinions. However, that's always uh, when he says, I don't disagree, but I disagree. However, he says, I'd like to explore your opinions. He's obvious. I reckon, I reckon Ian's in sales. I don't disagree, but I wonder if you'd listen to my alternative opinion and maybe agree with me instead. Um, and whether certain forms of leverage are more palatable than others. Again, I love this question because it's taking the, taking the nuance. I know you can't give personal advice, but I'd value your thoughts on an option I'm considering. So here we go, mate. Here's the story. 10 years ago, I purchased a Sydney investment property which in the intervening years has had good capital appreciation. The LVR on the mortgage is now 40%. A bank le- non-bank lender is offering me 2.4% to refinance that mortgage. And I'm wondering about increasing it to 70% LVR to unlock equity. I plan to invest that equity over a two to three year period, dollar cost averaging into a portfolio or ETFs and small cap shares. I'm in my mid forties. So I have 15 plus years until retirement. I feel the risks in this instance are more palatable than a margin loan or borrowing against my home equity. What I'm putting at risk is capital appreciation I've earned, in air quotes, over the past 10 years. Thanks in advance, Ian. What do you reckon? That's a really tough one. So yes, leverage is generally a bad idea. And it's generally mm. a bad idea because it, it it's that situation. Buffett says it's the only way a smart man can go broke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it, you will find yourself uh, <laughs> potentially in situations yeah. where you're forced to sell and and usually at the worst possible time uh, yeah. it's when it's when things fall and when you know uh, ostensibly you should be sort of filling your boots kind of thing that you're forced mm-hmm. to sell and um yeah, yeah. It, it becomes it becomes very tricky 
That being said, if I was going to do it, I think against a, a home uh, or house is is a better option because you don't yeah. have that margin call facility. I, yeah. You know, the way I would probably approach this, and I, I might be going too far down the rabbit hole here, but I, I would probably want to do a few, a, a bit of what they call scenario analysis. So mm-hmm. you've got your property now, the mortgage is, is a, a lot of it is, is paid off, 60% of it is paid off. What's it look like over the next five years, say? How much rent do I think I'm going to get? What are my costs against that, including interest? You know, factor in what, what I plan to do and pay that down. And how does, how does that kind of look? Then take the money that you're thinking of borrowing against that and say, well, what kind of return can I get on that? And that also forces you to rejig your, your scenario under your, your property as well, because now you've got a bigger loan. But, but do that scenario as well. And see which one lands lands out better. Now, the, the trick with this is, of course, is that when you start mucking around with spreadsheets, you can put all kinds of numbers in and make it seem like <laughs> exactly. the best idea in the world. Correct, correct. Um, so the key here is to be realistic and, and always mm. put in a bit of a margin of safety, a bit of be conservative, mm. right? Because if, if, if it turns out that you were too conservative, hey, you're not going to complain. It's just going to be better than you thought. But it just it just allows for that kind of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I There's also another option, and I'm just going to put that out there. Just you've got a nice capital gain on on your property there. You probably, if you're like most people, not getting a great yield on that after costs on a net basis. Sell the damn lot, sell everything, mm-hmm. take that money and put all of it into the market. I, if you're doing that over a five ten year period um, with no debt to pay and no risk of well much less risk because of the leverage, mm-hmm. the change in the leverage scenario, you might mm-hmm. find that that as a third scenario works out really well as well. So 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 trace out those those three scenarios and see which one looks the most sensible and balance that against the risks of each as well. I love it, mate. I'm not going to add much other than to say it's important to remember, and I know you are the most sensible bloke listening. The problem is everyone else thinks that as well. And so I don't say that to to bag you at all. I'm just going to remind you that everyone thinks they're not the other guy. And you've heard us in the past, I'm sure. And so you know what I'm going to say next, which is even if financially it makes sense, you need to add that behavioral element, right? Because you take the equity out, you put it in shares, the market drops 35%, you go, oh my God, my equity's gone. I'm going to sell to stem the bleeding, put it back in the mortgage. Guess what? You just locked in that loss. That's the very, very worst thing you can do. So even on top of Rams, you know, um, very thoughtful mm-hmm. idea of how to use leverage or which leverage to use or how to free the funds up. Always think about what you might do in those circumstances if and when the market moves the wrong way. Uh, because there are so many people I've said before who, and there will be, I haven't heard COVID stories yet, but we'll hear them. In fact, there are some COVID stories. I've already talked about people who got out of the market waiting for the crash to keep going. They missed the recovery. Now, mm. they didn't probably lose a fortune, but they didn't beat the market. So they kind of, you know, for all the effort and hassle and cost, as Ram says, it's not cost-free, right? You're going to have to pay an interest bill on that. So that comes with something. Um, so be mindful of that. I think investment property makes more sense in the home, as, as you've said. Uh, but just, just be mindful about how you might do it. I, look... I, it's hard, right? I I understand if you're going to do it that as Rams says, hands the most li- you know most reasonable thing to do. Uh, it's all investing, it's all equity. Um, so I get it. Uh, just just be careful as always. You know, banks may well actually margin call your investment property. It rarely happens, but if the shares were to fall and they re- reevaluate the let's say the property market falls, they revalue the property. You got to find some cash to to top it up, or the bank gets funny about your mortgage, or they refinance you at six percent rather than two point four. Um, all of a sudden, you've got to make that make that good, right? So there, there are there are just those issues. Generally speaking, it sounds like you're in a really good position financially. So I guess the other thing I do is look out into the future to retirement. Say, if I do nothing, how much will I have? You know, if I don't, if I don't borrow the extra money and I keep investing in both shares and investment property, how much will I have if I do borrow the money? Because it's got to be paid back at some point eventually too. Don't forget, what will that look like? What are the risks and, and opportunities, and go from there. 
All right, yeah. just one more thing. You made me. Yeah. I just wanted to. Um, in that scenario analysis, yeah, you've you've got to consider the prospect of sort of like correlated returns too. So let's yeah. say, for the sake of example, at the end of twenty twenty one, Australia enters into a, a recession. Yep. Not even a necessarily super scary one, but just a recession. I mean, in that scenario, it's it's very likely that both property and shares will fall. Um, mm. So your LVR mm. will shoot up just by virtue of your investment property going down. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, 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 it could it could fold. It could they correct. could move against you in concert. So that's that's another scenario to test and just see if yeah, you're comfortable correct. with. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Here's one from Scott, not me. Another Scott. He says, "Hi team, a comment for the podcast." Here, oh, here we go. I'm a subscriber. I like com- I don't mind comments, man. We like qu- answering questions. I actually quite like comments as well. We like to to know what our listeners are, are hearing, feeling, uh, thinking. Uh, unless Definitely. they disagree with us, in which case, please don't tell us. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> a comment for the podcast says Scott. I'm a subscriber to Blast Off, one of the monthly full services. And while it's been a roller coaster nine months for that portfolio, I'm happy to hold all the companies they have exciting futures. And I'm not going to do ad for Blast Off, but I will say back to the newest question we started with. That's exactly the sort of story you're looking for. It's a portfolio, right? It's still a roller coaster. Sometimes they all move the same way, so you're not going to get necessarily diversified short-term returns. Um, but that's just that's the life of a, of a growth investor. Just on the housing topic, which comes up a lot. No, my wife and I own our own home. <laughs> he says, and an investment unit, both with mortgages. And while my share portfolio could mostly wipe both of those mortgages off now, it's better for me to stay invested and chase those 10 to 20% returns. Incidentally, I'm in the process of switching banks, home loan dropping, how good is this, from 2.8 to 1.77%. Well done, Scott. Hashtag get a better rate. Haven't used that for a while. I've done all sorts of sums comparing the merits of property versus shares and whether to sell the unit as the returns after all the expenses are pretty dismal. No more than about 3%. I'm having to chip in thousands of dollars every year to keep up with it. But, Mm. he says... The loan is coming down about $8,000 every year, so we do see some slow progress and eventually it will be paid off. That's all well and good, and yes, I could likely get a better return investing in shares. But again, there is one fundamental reason. I've decided to keep the unit, and that is because of the ability for me to borrow a large amount of money to get it. We borrowed the full amount plus expenses, some $280,000 to buy the unit. A bank would never lend me that much money to buy shares. So all I'm doing is making use of my ability to borrow money at a very low interest rate to buy an asset. Maybe the lackluster returns are the same as stuffing money under the under the bed, but I will never tap into those funds. It will continue to grow in value, and with any luck, eventually, I won't be sitting on a $280,000 asset. I'll be sitting on a $560,000 asset. So for me, he says, the reason to invest in property outside my own home is for the ability to use leverage, as long as that leverage doesn't cause stress, he has. Maybe when I'm sitting on $300,000 equity in the unit one day, then it will be time to say, okay, now I can use that three hundred grand in a better way. Like Andrew says, happy to hear any opposing arguments. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Scott. I think we've done property to death. We've done leverage to death. We've done property investing to death. Uh, is, there, is there something in you bursting to get out though, Andrew? Do you, do you have a response? There, there is. I, I won't. I I'll flog a, a different <laughs> horse. Um, no, you won't. I, I, there's, 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 it was just a comment. It was actually a very thoughtful yeah. one. I, I really, really like uh, where Scott's coming from there. I think what I had a conversation with a mate recently in terms of the guaranteed return of paying off your house. Yeah. He's actually in the same situation. He's got he's yep. got a house. He's got an investment unit. He's got mortgages against both. Uh, and yeah, the you know the investment returns mm-hmm. aren't, aren't fantastic. But I was saying that listen, one and again, just 
as an option, putting it out mm. there, selling selling the investment property altogether, wiping out that mortgage and your other mortgage. Now, mm-hmm. okay, you're left off in, in in this. Let's say in this in this scenario, you're not left with anything after that. You're just left debt free. Yeah. Well, the return that you're getting there is that you no longer you no longer pay uh, a weekly, monthly mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. In other words, mm-hmm. another way of thinking about it, there's no rent. So, you know, imagine imagine how much better off you would be without... There's nothing in, in the world that can, mm. can hurt you at this point now. So also, you're, financially, you're bulletproof. <laughs> no matter what happens to the market, the property market could fall in half. Who cares? You've got a house to, to, to live in and it's not costing you a cent to live there. And you've now got each month a whole bunch of extra cash, likely thousands of dollars more than you didn't have under the other scenario because all of the money that you're earning was going to servicing those things. Now, that's... That's not that's not a bad idea. I mean, if those if those assets are, are doing very well and it's and on a real term and after cost it's going up, that 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 is a great thing. All I'm saying is just consider that guaranteed and very very real cash return that you get each week by not having to pay rent slash mortgage. Um, mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, that could be anywhere between five hundred and a thousand bucks a week. Uh, particularly if you're renting in Sydney, and take my word for it, it's sort of of that caliber. <laughs> you know, that's that that is that is huge. Uh, and then, of course, with with all of that extra uh, cash flow that you're getting, you can very quickly start saving up and putting that to work in the market or or, or into something else. But in a completely risk free fashion, in the sense that there's no there's zero leverage there. There's nothing that mm, can hurt mm. you in that regard. So that that to me has a lot of appeal and it's just, you know, it's each to their own, but it is something that I think more people should consider. Yeah, I'm I'm less strident than you are, mate, as, as you well know. Um, I actually, for some people, again, this is about, I, I'm going to talk about temperament all the time. I just do these days because it's just so much more important than most people give it credit for and, and more important, you'll never read in the textbook in the, in the right proportions. Mm. Um, <clears throat> the value of having just that, that, discipline of paying down an asset for some people is actually more than enough to justify it in my mind for all of the inefficient return for all of the poor return for all of the low return mm. if if having an investment property that you pay off on your 64th birthday um is is what you need to do to retire with an asset a paid off asset and have something for retirement then i'm going to say go for it i don't think it's the best option i wouldn't recommend it in in the uh compared to others so i'm, I'm am talking about both of them to some degree but in this case, it's literally just a case of, hey, you know, if you're, if this, if you, if you, if you're the sort of person who, who just feels good about this, needs to do it, wants to do it, can, can only find a way to do it this way, then go for it. You know, and if if you're hearing this going, oh, I just, I just, I, I can't bring myself to do X, but I, but I'm happy to do Y. You know, I'm happy to keep the investment property or the or the frankly the home mortgage is the same, right? Paying that down over 20, 30 years, if, if that's all you can do, you can't bring yourself to invest or stay invested or put enough money aside to invest. But if the mortgage bill comes, you got to pay it, so you do. Um, for some people, that just needs to be true and needs to be right. So I have no problem with that whatsoever. I do agree with your point to Scott about the likely future returns of both. Even with that debt, Scott, you borrowed the money already. And so to some degree, the question isn't sort of whether it was worth doing now. It's like what's left on the mortgage from here and what could you earn in two different compart- two different scenarios from that money? And it's pretty straightforward, right? Do the maths. Take, take the equity value. And then forecast that forward and say, right, you know, I'm going to pay down this period of time. At the end of this period, I'm going to have this much, you know, as a housing asset. Or I could save, you know, I, I could sell it, take out some equity now, invest that, and then add, as Ram says, the weekly or monthly mortgage repayments to that equity pile, and just see what number comes out better. And then you've got a really simple financial decision. That being said, as I said, you, you, you give a very strong sense that it's just, hey, I feel better doing this. 
And we're not going to talk you out of it, I assume. And that's completely cool too. So again, as I've said many, many times, I'll say many, many, many more times, the most rational and the best advice are often different things. So I think, I think the math should win on one level. On the other level, if it's just like, hey, I hear you, but I feel good about this, then go for it. I'm, I'm not going to criticize you for it. Fair? Nice. Yep. Let's yep. go to Mark. Podcast question, he starts with. Hello, Scott and Andrew. My name is Mark. I'm new to the podcasts. Dude, where have you been? But I have been a subscriber to The Motley Fool Share Advisor for nearly two years. Good man. Now, this is where, this is where my loathing for Mark comes out, Andrew. He says, I'm only Uh-oh. 25 years old. <laughs> now, I've, I've said many, many times what I wouldn't give to have those, in my case, well, let's just say a couple of decades back, um, I, would, I would give a lot of money to get those decades back. So you have my eternal envy, Mark. He says, I'm only 25 years old and I've learned about the share market with no guidance from my financial advisor. I do most of my investing over Comsec and I own ETFs, diversified stocks and, oh dear, some penny stocks, he says, all across multiple sectors of the market. I now have 10 to 15 stocks in my portfolio, only purchasing around the minimum for each one. For example, $500 minimum purchase. This leads me to my question. Is there such a thing as being too diverse with not enough money in these stocks, simply buying the minimum and hoping one takes off? Or is it better to dabble in a couple of stocks, pumping more spare cash into a single stock or two and riding it, hoping it's the one to make the gain? I know all advice is general and I'm in the market for the long term. I have my own property and I work full time. Some stocks I own, which I'm happy for you to mention or use as examples are Kogan, Brainchip, I think it's Navonics. It's give me codes and I'm going to struggle with some of these. I think it's Medicare, mm-hmm. Nanasonic, Sydney Airports, uh, I'm uh, Polynovo. The others I actually don't know. <laughs> so there we go. I'm excited to continue my investing quest and would love to hear any tips for a young solo investor like myself. And he finishes as he should with full on. Good man, Mark. Uh, I'll go first, mate, here. Um, Mark, I would be diversified. I think 15 to 20 stocks is a great place to be. Um, mathematically, academically, they say somewhere between 15 and 25, depending on which academic research you read. So you want to be that diversified, I think that's great. I would be a little slower to get there. At 500 bucks, if you're using Comsec, you're probably paying $20 a brokerage, something like that. Um, I actually, no, that's not 100 bucks. So a half thousand bucks, you're paying $10 brokerage. That's still 2%. I would probably be inclined to want you to get to closer to 1,000 bucks. Um, just minimizes your brokerage. Yes, you'll take twice as long to get to the 15 or 20. Yes, it you know it, it is more volatile for a while because you've got bigger bigger chunks in fewer companies. But over the fullness of whatever time it takes you to to add to, to select that money or sorry to aggregate that money and then buy your shares, you'll eventually get to the same point. So I would just lower your brokerage if you can. Um, I look <laughs> trying trying to pick one or two to make a gain on is absolutely gambling. Made as guesswork. And I don't blame you for wanting to believe it was possible. We all would. Um, you're a 25-year-old bloke. Trust me, those gray hairs or lack of hair I have um, will, is, is thankfully, hopefully for you, um, beneficial rather than just costing me my, uh, my, my youth. Uh, and that is just that, you know, I, if you'd have asked me in my portfolio, I've got probably, my thesis I've probably got 20, 25 companies in my portfolio in Australia and another five or so in the US. If you asked me when I bought them, which one or two would be best, I don't actually think I would have got it right. So diversification, not only is it just wise from a risk perspective, but you know the ability to have foresight is just so incredibly limited. Um, I am, I'm a better investor. I, I have better results, I'm sure, having 20 companies than if I'd try to pick one or two. So that's just my personal view. Ram? 
Yeah, that that all makes sense. Um, it, it's a question of scale. Um, so the, the the original question being, can you be too diversified? I think the answer yeah. is absolutely yes, you can. Yes, it yeah. gets to a it gets to a point Thank if you're you. a stock picker and you're buying, you've got fifty shares in your portfolio. There's a whole bunch of problems with that. One is even if you do pick a couple of flyers. Well, diversification works in reverse too. It minimizes your losses, <laughs> but it also it minimizes your gains too. So, yeah, yeah. you know, if, if, if a 2% position goes up tenfold, your overall portfolio doesn't go up as well, nearly as much, mm-hmm. um, even, though it's, even though it's a very nice thing to, to have. So, mm-hmm. so there is that. The other thing, I think from a practical standpoint, again, if you're, if you're a person who's picking individual stocks, that is, mm-hmm. that is a, you're a sucker for punishment because that is a lot of research to do, right? And, and mm-hmm. a lot of things to keep on top of. So every time reporting season rocks around, you've got 50 <laughs> sets of results to sort of dive into and figure out. And, and you know, right, it, it's right. just, it's super hard. So it's a lot of extra work for returns yeah. that are almost guaranteed to, to, to be lower. Yeah. Um, and then the, then the other argument is, is, well, if you want to take that approach, um, just buy an ETF and you get instant diversification, yeah. you buy the one thing, you get the average and you go and play golf or whatever, whatever floats <laughs> your boat. Um, and, and, and we know that that's probably going to be a very decent return o- o- over time. So you just, you just don't need to make life hard for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I only have about 12, I think, 10 or 12 stocks in my portfolio. And when I say that, really, there's probably five of them that constitute 60% of my portfolio. So I'm a pretty, yeah. I'm a pretty concentrated investor. So I definitely like the idea of, of f- playing favorites with my highest conviction stocks. But that's, that's a very important thing to underscore there, high conviction. So these are ones that I know intimately well i mean totally to your point like there's there's guaranteed to be a few in there that is no matter how much i like them and think they're great that they're going to disappoint maybe some radically so but but um i do have a high degree of conviction on them and even within that you know if if three or four of my stocks do terribly well i've still got eight or so others out there that are, that are going to buffer that so i when when you see these these studies when they when they chart out risk against the number of stocks in a portfolio it's a very hyperbolic kind of thing so you can still you you start the difference between a one stock two portfolio and a two stock portfolio in terms of risk is half right yeah, but yeah. then when you go to 3 to 4 to 5 it just starts it, it yep. starts getting yep. very, very low indeed. So you can mm-hmm. overthink. I don't think it's one of those things. I, I think you're right. I think 15 to 20 is a good good level for most people to sort of aim for. But even at, even at 10, you've got a, a huge amount of, uh, of diversification mm-hmm. value in that. So yeah, the, the, it's, it's a question that the, the, the degree to which you want to concentrate is the degree to which you have very high conviction and and a preparedness to know that that is also going to come with a much more volatility, which is going to yeah. have that behavioral challenge with it as well. So it's, it, it comes back to know thyself when it comes to investing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just, just to add a little bit of, uh, I guess, different nuance to, to your comments, which I totally agree with. No, I think that's right. The only thing I want to add, mate, is just, and just because we've both seen this way too many times is um, when you say the level of conviction, that conviction has to be based in reality as to your ability to have enough conviction. So, you know, I'm absolutely sure my, my team's going to win on the weekend. Eh, maybe you are, maybe not. You know, like, are you, are you genuinely good enough as an investor? Have you had enough experience to know that conviction is warranted, right? I've got a high conviction this company's going to go well. Based on what? I just think it's going to. No, 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 you don't get to call that conviction then. Like, it, it might be, literally, like, it might be, if you're super convicted about it, we certainly, man, just check out Facebook, right? The nuttiness that goes mm. on there. There's a whole lot of super convicted anti-vaxxers. Hey, how's that for controversy? A whole lot of super convicted <laughs> anti-vaxxers who are sure that vaccines are causing everything. 
it doesn't make it right. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. you have to have conviction, yeah. but you also have to have some reason to believe you're actually going to be right. And that's that, that's the same thing. I know, I know that's what you meant, but I just want to add that because just saying, well, I'm sure it's right. Well, you have to kind of, you know, if, if my if my eight-year-old son has a high level of conviction of how he should treat my, my headache, I'm probably not going to pay it that much attention. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing with investing, right? Like you can, yeah. you might be able to <laughs> trick other people on a social media platform, but do you really want to trick yourself? You know, that's, yep, you're yep, the yep. one, it's your money, right? And it's, you're the one who's going to suffer if you're, if you're pulling the wool over your own eyes. And then we all do, we all do it to some, to yeah, some exactly. degree. So it's just something to be aware of. Oh, totally. Yeah, we absolutely and, do. Try okay, and be honest. As you said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, try and be right. honest with yourself. And I, I, I really think what more of us as investors should be comfortable with the phrase, I don't know. I think too yeah. often, particularly yeah. those in the professional punditry, um, mm-hmm. all of us, we have to have a strong view on this. You know, <laughs> it's, it's cool. It's cool to say, totally I don't true. know. And just totally wait true. until you get that, get that fat pitch that you, you do know, or at least feel as if you've got a better edge at knowing. Anyway, yeah. let's go on. Very true. Question from Cam. Kind of the same as the last one, mate. So we'll try and uh, do it quickly. Maybe the same answer might be different. Let's find out. Hi, Scott. I'm reasoning to do investing. I only opened my portfolio about two months ago. Good man, Cameron. Welcome. I'm 26. Another man with my eternal envy. And my plan is long-term investing. Good man. He's doing well so far, mate. Gets better. Since opening my account, I've purchased seven companies, roughly around 500 bucks into each company. My aim is to invest $500 a fortnight. My question to you is, would you recommend I invest fortnightly and just cop the brokerage or hold off and purchase monthly or every six weeks with a greater amount and thus lessening my brokerage. He says, I currently subscribe to your basic plan and have purchased most of your April and May recommendations and that is my plan moving forward. Thanks, Cam. Oh, then he says, mm. thanks, Cam. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, mate. Thanks for the question. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for getting started investing, mate. You will, I guarantee, not regret it as long as you do it well and stay uh, true for the long term. I can't guarantee much, but uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that I'm okay with ASIC if I guarantee that as long as you stay long term, keep investing, stay diversified, do the right things, you'll be, you'll, you'll be pretty happy you did. Yep. All right. Um, I'm going to answer quickly first, mate. I reckon, look, if you're probably, if you're with a free brokerage, it doesn't matter. If you're with someone like Comsec, uh, Comsec, for a small investor, actually, doing for a mainstream broker, doing a really good job thus far. Um, they have the, the Pocket app, which is a super cheap way to access some ETFs. And if you buy less than a thousand dollars worth of shares with Comsec per trade, they cap the brokerage at ten bucks a hit, which I think is pretty pretty bloody reasonable. So, um, Cam, I would I would try and get to a thousand bucks just under. So, if you get to a thousand and one, you got to pay twenty dollars. So, keep it under a thousand bucks. Again, we can't tell you what you should do. We can't give personal advice. But for me, if I had money to invest, I would. Try and get 990 bucks ish, and then uh, invest that uh, regularly into into companies. So maybe once a month, or once every no, two fortnights, which isn't quite monthly, but you know what I mean. Um, get 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 close to that and invest is what I personally would do. Um, can't tell you what you should do, and you might you might by the way want to spend 500 bucks a go and get to 15 companies quickly, and then increase it if you if you want to get diversified super fast. It's the only way I'd um, probably modify that that advice depending on what you wanted to do. What do you reckon, Ram? No, well said. I mean, this this is a question that entirely comes down to brokerage. So if if we lived in a world with zero brokerage, then yeah, just you know, save ten bucks, pop it in. Uh, whenever yeah, whenever you yeah. get the cat, it, it, it actually yeah, makes exactly, no exactly. difference whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in a world and, and and you can, there's pr- plenty of brokers out there that'll do less than ten bucks a trade under any limit. Yep. You know, like yep. self wealth and think markets and these kind oh, of there you there, go, there's okay, lots cool. of them. There's lots of them out there, and no no oh, affiliation right. with with either of them. So. Um, 
but yeah, given given that in the real world you will have to you will have to pay some form of brokerage, at least if that's the case in Australia, it's not not yeah. the case in the US. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I think it's I think you're still going to get the full benefits of dollar cost averaging if you're doing it every yeah. few months as opposed to every month. You know, over over the full as a 26 year old over the fullness of time, you're not going to see any mm-hmm. material difference in that, but you'll probably save a heap of brokerage. So I, I, I would go with that. Yep, I, I like that a lot, mate. I'm going to actually add just one thing just to your answer and my original answer, which is just, it, well, it's, it's super hard when you're young and starting because just, it just is, and I don't mean that condescendingly, just like, you know, you have, you have no other frame of reference. If you're investing, and we hope you do, for years and years and years and years and years, whether you make, let, let's, let's talk about five years, right? Whether you make 60 monthly investments or 30 bi-monthly investments, it's probably not going to matter that much. And frankly, go to about 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. Um, you know, it's just not going to matter that much. So yes, it feels a bit, you know, rocky now because small numbers of companies will move your portfolio around a bit. Um, but if you can kind of keep that five plus year lens, um, it makes investing only every every month rather every fortnight, for example, a much more tolerable approach to take. If you know, though, yeah. you're going to be someone who is going to be worried by volatility, then do take the opportunity, you know, to, to do it more frequently. If you, if you want to, just for your own peace of mind, get diversified more quickly then go for it you know like honestly copying the extra 10 bucks of brokerage per trade is not going to kill you either way right it's this is the beginning right you know if you're two months into a hopefully where you're 26 so let's call it a 40 plus year pre-retirement investment hopefully by the way you die at 98 or something so you've got a 72 year you know investment horizon in front of you um two months is tiny compared to that and so uh, just you know if, if it costs you 10 bucks a trade to get started then go for it no point, no point throwing good money after bad. So if you don't have to or don't want to, then don't. Uh, I'd absolutely recommend paying less brokerage rather than more. Uh, but it's really not going to matter to your overall returns over the over the course of your life to take the time, effort, maybe a bit of extra cost to get started well. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, and just one final thought on it as well. The key with dollar cost averaging is to be mechanical about it. So it's, it's a great plan. It's a brilliant plan. It's like diversification. It's one of those things that's as old as Adam, but just works. It, yeah, like, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's, one of those, it's one of those few things in, in finance and investing that's guaranteed to, to work in terms of, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to do what it, it, it sets out to achieve, which is reduce risk. The trouble is, is that what we can find ourselves, like if the market is falling, you might say, well, this month I might just hold off because I'll get a better price. Or conversely, when the market's roaring, you think, oh, it's a bit expensive. I'll just hold off. The, the beautiful thing with dollar cost averaging is that that's, that's the point, right? You buy when it's down and you actually, you get more shares per dollar because shares are cheaper. Um, and when you, and you buy when the market is up, and, but it, the key is doing it on a regular basis, no matter what. Um, yeah, so exactly. if, if you exactly. don't do that that's and, right. and right. it's, a, and it's a great plan to do, just that's make right. sure that you set, set that alarm, set that calendar reminder. And when mm-hmm. that day comes, mm-hmm. whatever is happening out there in the market, just put it to work because because yeah. it, it doesn't work when you start to people start off with that intent. I've seen it happen. Starts off mm-hmm. with that intention, but then they introduce a degree of timing to it, which yeah. kind of mucks it all up. And yeah, mm-hmm. don't don't do that. I like that a lot. All right, uh, mate. One more. I'll go tough. I'll squeeze one more in from Craig this time. Hi, Scott and Strawman. He says nothing brings a child more excitement and joy than playing with bubbles. <laughs> as adults, we appear to get so excited by bubbles as well, but a different kind asset bubbles he says trouble is it's hard to recognize when you are playing with an asset bubble and when they pop they don't bring great joy so i have a question for the podcast says craig for you two wise men oh dear how does the knowledge that asset bubbles exist play into your investment process it's a really cool question love the podcast full on craig what are we telling craig mate 
Yeah, the, you know what's interesting about this? I'm trying to desperately think of the author. Um, uh, might have been Schiller or someone when they, they actually set out to do a bunch of studies on this. And, and obviously, right. when you go to do a study on bubbles, you have to define what a bubble is. <laughs> That's right. It's actually hard to define. We. It, it's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. That I don't know if I can say this on the podcast. It's you like can, that. That can. definition of. of that definition of porn, you know, material. it's like, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it's hard to define, but I know it when I see it kind of yeah, thing. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of the situation with, <laughs> with, with bubbles. So yeah. you're right. They do exist. They will always yeah. exist. As long as humans and their emotions are at, are at yeah. play in some way, shape or form, there, there will always be bubbles. The trouble with bubbles yeah. is that, A, as I said, they're sort of, they are hard to spot. Uh, at times and even when mm. you do mm. spot them this is the really pernicious one is that mm. bubbles the market what's the saying the market can remain irrational far longer than you can remain solvent Correct. so you can be in a bubble just ask me about my view on property <laughs> um, <laughs> No and, and 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 potentially be right in the fullness of time, but it might might take another five or six years. In fact, a lot of the a lot of the people who were sort of purported to pick the the two thousand and seven mm. GFC and, and the rest of it, they were sort of calling for that for ages and ages and ages. So it becomes it becomes really hard. One, are you ever going to spot it? And even if you do, are you going to spot it and then time it, it correctly? So I I uh, Craig have just made my peace with it, and it's a very sanguine kind of approach. And it's just like I know they exist. But I'm going to try and always maintain uh, an eye on quality and value when I'm looking at my individual stocks. I'm going to try and be more aggressive when I feel as though there's there's good opportunities. and I'll be more cautious when there aren't. But just know that at some point, a, a bubble is going to develop and then it's going to pop and it's going to suck for that period of time. Um, but mm. that is, that is as we like to say, a feature, not a bug of the markets. <laughs> and and I, just, I just continue to invest through that. And the great thing about when a bubble pops is that the fear and, and uncertainty drives everything down, even the good stuff. And so you do yeah. often get some opportunities there as well. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't have anything anything like really clever to say about it because, you know, the, the tempting answer is to sort of say, oh, well, what you do is when you see X, Y, and Z, <laughs> yeah, then you just take, that's right. take yeah. your money yeah. out of the market. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know what well, the, the X, Y, and Z is. goes past the thingamajig and, uh, and alerts yeah. us to the what's my call, then you should do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. just you've got to live with it, unfortunately. You really do. I uh, So my answer, Craig, is hopefully useful. Uh, it borders on not answering your question at all. Uh, what do I? How does the knowledge of asset bubbles explain my investment process? They absolutely do not, at all. I don't care. Not that I would like not to care. <laughs> um, we mentioned Howard Marks a lot, and one of his quotes, um, or one of his one of his lines. I won't, I won't quote him directly because I don't know the quote. One of the lines is. You know, there there are there is a four way matrix, right? There is important and there is knowable, and in each box is either yes or no. So, is it important? Yes. Is it knowable? Yes. Then make sure you know what's going on and make sure you include it. Is it not important? No. Well, it doesn't matter if it's knowable or not because it's not important. The worst box, the hardest box, is is it important? Yes. Is it knowable? No. Okay. Well, then by definition, it's one of those. Well, it'd be nice if we did, but we don't know it. So why would I waste time on it? Um, and, I, you know, I think for me, that's the same case with asset bubbles. And I wouldn't even just say, it's funny we talk about bubbles, but we don't talk about crashes necessarily. And this is part of the human brain of, of prioritizing kind of avoidance of, of risk over the acceptance of risk to some degree. Um, so we could say, now, you know, we know there are asset booms. What do you do? Well, still nothing. Or we know there are asset crashes. What do you do? Well, still nothing because 
it's the overall cycle that we know. Having been around this for a very long time now, more years than I care to acknowledge, um, it's, it's, that's actually a scary number too. I, I should do those maths one day. Um, it is really worth thinking about this and saying, right, hang on. Okay, I know there are bubbles, yes. Can I know when they're going to hit? Or, or, you know, or, uh, firstly, can I know when we're in one? Not really, I can speculate. If I'm wrong, by the way, having taken action to avoid it would be completely useless. And again, I'll, me- I'll mention those very smart people who in March and April of last year sold everything because they were waiting for the, the COVID crash to kind of finish. And then once COVID was over, they're going to buy back in. Guess what? COVID's still here and we're at market highs on the ASX. So it tells you exactly everything you think you, you, you might need to know or want to know. It's a perfect example of why you should avoid even trying to do it. So there's that. Um, and the same with crashes, right? So Morgan Housel, a great full writer, talks about um, more money is probably lost in his view avoiding the bubble than in the crash of that bubble. In other words, you know, the market might go up 100% then fall 30. If you're avoiding both of those, you're way behind. It's like buying the dip, right? Waiting for a 5% dip. In the meantime, the shares go up 20%. Then I buy, get my 5% dip. Great. So I've paid 15% more than I could if I hadn't been waiting for the dip. Uh, so it's, it's all that stuff all rolled together, Craig. Literally, I do nothing. I'm almost always fully invested. I know there's going to be crashes. I was fully invested pre-COVID. I'm fully invested post-COVID. You know, I kept adding the money during COVID, by the way. And so dollar cost averaging is probably the answer to your question of when share prices are cheap, my $1,000 a go buys more shares. When shares are expensive, my $1,000 buys fewer shares. Overall, I expect dollar cost averaging will work in my favor. But moreover, if I forecast over the next 60 plus years of my hopeful investing life, maybe maybe not quite 60, maybe 2030. It's ambitious. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I was still, I was still channeling those uh, the, the young guys. Um, if I think about that period of time, you know, there'll be, there'll, I guess there's probably going to be, I'm going to say three bubbles, I'm going to say five booms, and I'm going to say seven crashes. Just, I don't make up a number, who cares? Probably something um, like that, yeah. And, yeah, and, and so like overall, but do I expect I'll have more money than I started with? Yes. Is it likely to be something around the market average, historically? Probably. So why do I care? Now, as you say, if I could do it, I'd do it. Of course, if I, if I knew we're in a bubble and it's going to crash on the 85th of August 2048, great. I'll do it then. But I don't, right? 85th of August, clearly not a date either, by the There's way. It's not 85. I, just I, need, I know you picked that up. I know you picked that up. <laughs> um, but you don't know. It just, yeah, if it was knowable, and yes, absolutely, I'd do a whole lot of things differently. Um, same as same as day trading or, or share price highs and lows and booms and busts. And if I could, if I thought reading charts helped, I'd do that. If I thought, you know, I, I just I don't. I think the way I invest is the best way for me, the best way I know of, uh, and the best way we hope to suggest other people could do the same, which is simply uh, keep adding, ride the waves because the destination is worth the pain of getting there. Yep. Fair, mate. Fair. Very fair. Thank you, fools for spending some time with us listening to this episode, this special mailbag episode of Motley Fool Money. You can get a hold of us on the social. We hope you do. As you know, I'm on holidays right now, so I'm not going to be looking at the mailbag, but when I get back, I sincerely hope it's full because otherwise we're going to have not much to talk about. In the first couple of weeks, I'm back. And hey, if you don't want a Motley Fool Money mailbag episode, don't send us a question. But if you do, if you're enjoying it, if you get value from it, if you have any questions you want answered, or as some of your fellow listeners have already done, some comments some thoughts that they want to share, please do that. You can also just follow us on socials for fun because it's just interesting. We post some interesting stuff from time to time. I'm prone to the occasional rant, you might you might believe, uh, but hopefully it's useful. Hopefully it's That's what Twitter's maybe. for, isn't it? That's why it's <laughs> pretty much. raison d'etre. That's <laughs> why it much. exists. I, I, fulfill, I fulfill its... Uh, what, what, you're, a, you're a startup founder, what do they call those things? What, what's the... Uh, 
It's core value it's proposition. There you go. There like you that. go. There you go. Yeah. I, I am the definition of the... No, I don't, I don't only rant. I try and share some interesting stuff as well. Uh, all right, here we go. If you're following Andrew, you want to follow Andrew, go to sage underscore Simeon on Twitter or the Strawman account at Strawman Invest. If you're on Insta or Twitter, the TMF Scott P account is mine on both those handles or both those networks, I should say, platforms, or at the Motley Fool AU. That's on Twitter and Insta. On Facebook... Jump onto Scott Phillips Money or the Motley Fool Australia. Uh, and of course, you can email us info at fool.com.au. Mark it up for the podcast, and our wonderful member services team will make sure it gets its way, finds its way to our hot little hands. In the meantime, don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Motley Fool Money podcast. Please do, because um, it helps you make sure you don't miss any episodes. It helps other people find it. And speaking of that, if you can leave us a review, leave us some stars, that'd be much appreciated. We read some five star reviews. We'll read some more five star reviews another time. But hopefully they are useful and hopefully they give you a sense that other people are enjoying it as much as you are and we hope other people will find it as well. So make sure you do subscribe. In the meantime, we'll see you on Friday with another episode of Motley Fool Money. Fool on. See you then. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.